Hi there, and welcome to the Age of Victoria. My name is Sam Hume, the host of a podcast on the history of the British Empire, Pax Britannica. I chose that name not because I particularly love Latin, but because of what it means. The British Peace, which supposedly began after the Battle of Waterloo and lasted for a century. Of course, this peace was built on military and financial domination and wasn't really very peaceful. In many ways, the real Pax Britannica and the Victorian Age are one and the same. Victoria herself oversaw the Pax Britannica. Unlike the Age of Victoria podcast, however, my podcast isn't actually looking at the Pax Britannica yet. The narrative is currently in the 17th century, with the reign of James VI and I. By the time I reach Queen Victoria, I will have covered how a rainy archipelago could enforce a supposed global peace. If you want to listen to that story, then Pax Britannica is available on all good podcasting apps. Now, on with your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Let's get on with the show. And we are back with another main show. I'm actually almost a little surprised to get here because not only has real life interfered too much with work and family and stuff like that, and the kids' summer holidays, but more importantly, I nearly fell into the Stranger Things season three black hole. And I think we can all agree, Steve, far too good for this town. Now, let's get on with the show. It's time to move forward after the fun of the two anniversary shows. We've got a ton to get through in the next year. I laid out a rough teaser guide in the anniversary specials, but it's time to jump into the specifics. We're going to cover politics in the next couple of shows, then take Victoria through to the throne. Since Victoria was the monarch in a constitutional monarchy, politics was fundamental to her whole life. It made up a core part of her being. We need to recognise that it changed throughout her life, and so as a topic, we'll need frequent revisiting. Politics is one of the main movers of society. Politics is about power. Who has it? How it is used? When? And why? It is fundamental to so much of life, and it is inescapable from the smallest tribe to city-states to the greatest of empires. Politics runs through everything. In this show, and the next ones, we are going to look at the political systems in Britain in the 1820s to 1830s. I say systems because I'm going to argue that a political system is far more than the core constitution and laws. A true understanding of a political system requires considering the social structures and the influences it is working in and through. If I told you the rules of the Indian civil service, for example, but didn't mention how climate, society and Scottish family traditions worked, you'd only get a very, very dry black-letter law view. 
although that will actually have to wait, but not too much longer, because Victoria, Scotland and Empire closely entwined. Don't worry, I have some fascinating stories to go with it. Plus, there are some genuine Scottish heroes out there during the 1820s, doing the noble and dishonest deeds that helped found one of the glories of human civilization. No, not the Scottish university system, the Scottish whisky industry. Anyway, this is important not only because it lays the groundwork for the social changes we will see at the start of Victoria's reign, but also because her mother, the Duchess of Kent, and John Conroy allied themselves with the reformist Whig politicians of the period. They made Victoria a partisan figure, and she picked up the habit early during her reign. It led her to make mistakes she would never make during the middle and later periods of her reign. It would also lead to Lord Melbourne, Sir Robert Peel, and almost inevitably to Prince Albert. When you listen to this show and the events in it, remember it is happening as Victoria was growing up. That means the stuff I'm covering in this show and the next couple were happening alongside the shows on Victoria's childhood. Once we finish off these politics shows, we'll pick up with the young Victoria again and bring her to the moment we've been waiting for, becoming Queen. At that point, I might do another recap episode, because boy do we have some big topics coming up, and I want to bring it all together before we hit the roller coaster I've got planned. In the isolated world of Kensington Palace in the 1820s, the young Victoria was kept at a distance from the royal family, politicians, and the common people. Outside, though, British politics and society was being torn apart with discontent. The year without summer and Peterloo had rocked the nation, but even as people moved on, underlying problems still cried out for someone to solve them. Like it or not, most national problems have to be solved by national-level politics. How that is done depends on the various political ideologies of the time. More government, less government, more tax, less tax, more localism, more centralism, more libertarianism, more socialism. Those are the tools for the politicians and also the frameworks they operate in. But remember, these ideas and frameworks are not universal, nor are they consistent throughout history. Labels like left or right wing don't work as well when looking at the Victorian era. A person on the left today might identify racial equality and women's rights as key issues. A Victorian who approved of the women's rights movement might well push hard for a white-dominated Australia and South Africa, which would seem irreconcilable to those on the modern left. It is really problematic to use the labels left or right wing, so I will try to avoid it as much as possible. Instead, we need to recognise that politics is highly personal and contextual. A politician today might call themselves a one-nation Tory and be a modern Conservative and a pro-Remain in the Brexit debate, whilst another 
might call themselves a strong Brexit supporter and also a unionist, but both would say they were MPs in the Conservative Party. If the values that unite them and give them power remain strong, the party can cope with the differences. If not, it will split. Looking back to the 1820s and 1830s, you can see the Duke of Wellington and Sir Robert Peel were both Tories, but they had hugely different personalities and political views. Where does this take us? Well, it is a reminder that politics was endlessly complex throughout Victoria's life. It formed the backdrop to her young life, and many of the political personalities we're going to meet in the next show and the one after would be around as she came to the throne. Let's start then with our usual quick primer. I bet a lot of listeners subconsciously put society into a sort of pyramid with government at the top, then the mid-level administrations, then the local administrations, then community groups, then individuals, with laws coming down from the top, almost like a military hierarchy. That's wrong, even today, and completely wrong when we look at the Victorian era, despite the more rigid social hierarchies of the period. Oh, and I'll be mentioning class a fair bit. We've touched on it before, and I've promised a show on it. That's getting more urgent, but just for today, remember British class was hugely complex, and, for today's purposes, we'll break it down into the following order from top to bottom. Monarchy, at the top, the aristocracy, the upper class, the lower upper class, the upper middle class, the middle middle class, the lower middle class, the upper or respectable working class, the lower working class, and the abject poor. Foreigners were outside the class structure and dependent on rank, wealth, friends, and the reasons for interacting with the British person in question. After all, a visiting prince of Saxe-Coburg would be considered a foreigner and would experience racism from the British aristocracy. But those aristocrats would be outraged if said prince were treated with disrespect by the man in the street. That is, in the unlikely event man in the street got near them beyond seeing them in a carriage ride. Likewise, a British soldier in India would consider himself probably superior to any person he met in India except those of the highest rank, who he would perhaps instinctively place as his betters on the social class, but somehow different and not quite properly gentlemen. When looking at the Victorian era, the UK was officially defined, inaccurately, as a representative parliamentary democracy with a constitutional monarchy. The UK is ruled in name by the monarch, who is officially the head of state. In reality, the UK was a semi-democratic oligarchy, with the unwritten constitution offering vast scope for corruption and little in the way of real input from the citizenry. In typical British fashion, it was organic, disorganised, often highly irrational or dysfunctional, but tended to give stability 
a strong set of institutions, and huge tax revenues. I can't cover all of it, and it isn't necessary to lay out every committee, court, traditional manor laws, medieval holdovers, local or municipal authorities, or weird traditions. The British Civil War had established the idea of Parliament being supreme. The monarch was subordinate to Parliament, but retained those powers that Parliament hadn't expressly taken away. Those are known as royal prerogatives, and they were, and still are to a degree, quite significant. Some do remain today in active use. Ironically, Victoria listened to Lord M as a political advisor when she came to the throne and he gave her the impression her rights were more limited than perhaps was the case. Throughout Victoria's reign, power moved increasingly away from the monarchy, whilst its public prestige increased. She always retained immense power and influence though, far more than the modern royal family could dream of. It is this transition, as well as the desperate need for reform, is why it's so important that we spend time looking at politics and revisit the subject. Underneath the monarchy, in theory, was the Church of England, the Anglican Church that is, with its hierarchy, there was the judiciary, and then Parliament. There was also the beginnings of one of the greatest bureaucracies the world had ever seen, the British Civil Service, and its cousin, the Indian Civil Service. Scotland had its own variations on the system. Laws passed in Parliament didn't automatically apply in Scotland. Legal advice sometimes had to be sought, and on one famous occasion, the government lawyer, Mr Tring, said that the Act of Parliament in question absolutely did apply to Scotland, but it was pointless to actually do anything with it, since the Act only allowed enforcement through the English and Welsh court systems. Scotland had a completely separate court system. Sometimes this was accepted, but it was a long-running issue throughout the Victorian period. At other times, it was extremely vexing, especially in areas of public health legislation. Then, alongside the formal systems, were the aristocracy, acting as shadow networks that flowed through various branches of government. Family connections counted a lot and allowed people to access political power or gain patronage that they might otherwise lack. The army was fairly open about this. The navy leaned more towards merit, but even there, a well-connected officer might find it easier to get a good posting and progress. The main institution for government was Parliament. This was an extremely complicated thing made up of a soup of traditions, statutes, committees, clerks, historical documents, and the two great chambers, the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The Commons is the dominant chamber today, but in the 1820s it wasn't quite so much. Government could be conducted from the Lords and in the Commons. It was perfectly possible for a Prime Minister to sit in the House of Lords. The Commons 
had to propose a finance bill once a year, and it mostly introduced legislation. Don't be fooled by the label Commons. It was not made up to be a chamber of mass representatives of the common people. Far from it. It just meant its members were not lords and held a nominal election. Most, if not all, would hold lands and be wealthy, or at least be gentlemen with wealthy patrons. It was not democratic in the modern sense, and that was quite deliberate. At best, it was a representative democratic institution, but not a direct one. Members once elected were expected to follow their own conscience, and if the voters didn't like it, they had to wait for the next election. This clearly heightens the lack of real democracy in the United Kingdom. Even today, Parliament was presented with bills. These were basically proposals for laws. They were read to the House, and MPs debated them, made amendments, and sent them to committees for scrutiny, then made more amendments. At the end of it all, they voted. This was done by going through divisions, as it is called. MPs would leave the chamber to the eye or nay doors to indicate the votes. Only MPs present could vote. The system was shambolic, disorganised and open to corruption. It has been retained as the treasured core mechanism of parliamentary procedure and continues to disgrace modern Britain. The bill then moved to the House of Lords, referred to by the House of Commons as the other place. The Lords would give it intense scrutiny. This could be hit and miss. Some Lords were hereditary, only in place because of family title. Of these, some took the role seriously, some didn't. There were also the Lords Spiritual, Senior Lords from the Church of England, and alongside them were the Law Lords, Senior Judges, who sat in the House of Lords and took part in its role as a court. During the early Victorian period, and before the Reform Act, 1832, the Lords were much more powerful, since they could effectively appoint members of the Commons. Okay, how did that work? Well, many of the Lords owned the rotten boroughs that elected MPs. If you've not heard the term rotten borough before, it was basically a constituency controlled by a tiny number of electors that voted in an MP. In Old Sarum, for instance, there were 11 voters who turned up at the old hill fort, put up a tiny house, did the vote, and then went home again. Meanwhile, Manchester had zero MPs. Another notorious rotten borough elected MPs even though the original town had fallen into the sea. As a side note, This highly unrepresentative system made the original claims of no taxation without representation really, really annoying to a lot of common British people at the time of the US War of Independence, since they felt, one, why should a group of colonists get more rights than us, and two, the colonists had more democratic power and freedom on the ground guaranteed by British military protection. So, how about a bit more gratitude? Anyway, I digress. The government was the group that could command a majority in the House and had the confidence of the monarch, since before the Reform Bill of 1832, the government was still essentially 
more about ensuring that all the parties of government, the monarch, the lords and commons, acted only through parliament. The reform bill and the later arrival of formal political parties transformed the system from government by royal court to government by the commons and parliament to in the late Victorian era of government of parliament by the main political party. By tradition, they were invited by the monarch to form a government. But Victoria twisted the thumbscrews sometimes, and more honourable MPs would often decline an offer to form a government if they felt they couldn't command the confidence of either the Queen or the House. The Prime Minister in modern Britain is the leader of the largest party in the House of Commons, or the leader of a coalition of parties that can agree to form a government. That wasn't necessarily the case in the past. The term Prime Minister itself was ill-defined as Victoria began her reign, and it wasn't a formal office. The more usual terms were First Lord of the Treasury, and things like that, since Prime Minister was really an evolution from a more derogatory phrase, suggesting that a single minister was getting above themselves, and a bit too close to the monarch. It seems to have been flung as an insult at Walpole. He sometimes decried the title. By 1805, it was becoming more common and accepted. Disraeli would eventually come to sign treaties using the phrase Prime Minister, and Hansard seems to recognise it from the 1880s onward. Gladstone was a bit vague about it sometimes. Queen Victoria herself referred to Prime Ministers by various terms, ranging from Dear Lord M to her description of Gladstone as, quote, half crazy and in many ways ridiculous, wild, incomprehensible old fanatic, end quote. I will keep things simple by calling anyone who was acting as Prime Minister in the 19th century as Prime Minister, unless they are doing something in another capacity entirely. For instance, Disraeli, when he was an author. Within Parliament were also the powerful committees. Sometimes these were ad hoc and convened for particular issues. Others were more long-standing. They could have a huge impact, such as the Parliamentary Committee investigating stamp duties on the press. A campaign group against stamp duty was formed, and to quote a review by Melissa Score of a book on press reform by historian Hewitt, quote, Thomas Milner Gibson, the president, secured a select committee to investigate the newspaper stamp. As Hewitt notes, this committee was packed with supporters of deregulation. It exposed anomalies in the way the law was interpreted by the Board of Inland Revenue, end quote. So you can see, they could be significant engines for change. Aside from the powers of the committees, the courts would also sometimes look at the proceedings of committees when they wanted to interpret black-letter law. The Constitution itself is unwritten. That just means it isn't a single set of codified documents. Rather, it is the Acts of Parliament, powers of the monarch, the unwritten common law, which was essentially court precedent and common custom, 
plus the various regulations regulated trade. As celebrated Victorian jurist A.V. Dyson noted, Constitution was simply that Parliament is supreme and can make any law it likes. It had fought King Charles I in the 1600s and chopped his head off to prove it. This curious statement isn't the end of things. After all, if that was the case, we'd have an elected dictatorship, as the judge, Lord Hailsham, said. Think of it like this. If each parliament is supreme, then it can always overturn the decisions of the previous parliament. Hence, no parliament or act can bind its successors. That should theoretically mean there is no check on parliament as long as it passes a law, and constitutionally, nothing can stop it doing or legislating what it wants. Parliament's actions were and are constrained by the conventions it operated in. Now, convention is just a way of saying that's the way we do things around here, even if there's no real law. They are the magic that gives the skeleton of the constitution life. Convention might say that it is the maiden speech of an MP is politely applauded rather than criticised. That's a minor convention. A more important one is that the House can't be asked to vote repeatedly on a matter on which it is given a settled view, unless there is a significant change in circumstances. Most important is the convention that ministers are accountable to Parliament for their actions and those of their civil servants, so they can't lie to Parliament and must resign if their department screws up so badly that Parliament needs to hold them to account. Ministers in the Victorian era certainly did resign far more readily than modern politicians. The spectacle of some modern ministers clinging on to the doorframe Arguing there's no actual law that says they should resign just because they are in contempt of Parliament or have claimed expenses for having a second home that they don't actually use and gave to their parents or even being part of the first government in British history to be found in contempt of Parliament as a whole, well, these scandals would probably shock many of the early Victorian MPs to their core they hopped in a time machine. In the Victorian age, the whisper of the word scandal could sometimes carry as much weight as the scandalous actions. The rights of the crown became more formal and the courts took an increasingly powerful role. That said, fundamentally, Parliament remained the ultimate exerciser of power. But politics was still intensely personal. Having the personal confidence of the monarch or the House of Commons was a big deal. The crown could have a huge impact on who formed a government, and a prime minister who couldn't command support in the commons or the lords would often advise the crown that they should invite someone else to try and form a government. This has been reduced to a kind of legal fiction today. Technically, the modern queen can invite someone else to form a government, but in practice, she can only do it if something is going wrong in Parliament. 
and they ask her nicely. For Victoria, though, this was a very real option, and she initially involved herself in politics a lot. Also, as monarch, she had the power to create lords, to pack the House of Lords, to swing the votes. It was illegal for her to command the army, but technically she had the power to disband it, and the navy. Also, as monarchs, both King William IV, Victoria's predecessor, and Victoria herself, also monarchs of Scotland and Ireland. These had very different systems. The UK Parliament ruled Ireland, but the Irish establishment itself was ruled from Dublin Castle. In Ireland, the Catholic Church very much a political entity as well as a spiritual one. There were also the universities. Again, these had far more power and influence than they do today, both in Ireland and on mainland Britain. Many politicians would still be in awe of their professors and would be alive to criticism from a university. Universities in Scotland and Wales both played enormous roles in shaping culture and thus gave rise to MPs who pushed for distinct cultural and political identities. T.E. Ellis, a Welsh MP, 1886 for example, was pushing for home rule for Ireland and Wales, a separate church and education system in Wales, and of course, land reform. Scottish university graduates often headed to London or India, taking their own distinct culture and outlook with them, in turn shaping the political structures. Then there were the great public schools like Rugby or Eton. These churned out the middle-class men who were supposed to manage the empire. They created one of the most powerful cultural networks in the world. Men grew up together, sang the same hymns, ate the same food, lived away from parents or female siblings for long periods. They were shaped for what was called muscular Christianity and indoctrinated in the idea that they were being bred to rule and manage an empire. Values were shared along with knowledge of Latin. Toughness, sport and things like that were all prized. Many graduates would leave school seeing themselves as paladins. Quite literally, they saw themselves as champions of Christ in a world threatened by darkness. This version of Christianity had more of an Old Testament fire and sword flavour to it. It's a dangerous political worldview. If you think you are a champion of the light, then what does that make your opponents? Then they stepped out into the world, finding mess halls or civil service posts that mimicked their old school life in many ways. This was bolstered through the network of gentlemen's clubs. The Athenaeum, founded in 1824, men of science, literature and art, the Reform Club of 1836, associated originally with supporters of the Reform Bill. Its twin club, the Carlton, was founded in 1832 for political conservatives, the Royal Colonial Institute, associated with the colonies and British India, and the United Service Club from 1815 for senior level military officers. But there were dozens more. 
the Duke of Wellington was a member of Boodles, but he should really have been a member of White's, which was considered the unofficial headquarters of the Tory party. As David Cameron could have told you, White's was considered the premier club, of course. The chair in the front window was considered the throne of social London and was reserved for the Duke of Wellington when he decided to drop in. The opposition from the Whigs was Brooks Club nearby. It too had a glittering list of members, including Lord Melbourne, dear Lord M, plenty of kings, princes, barons, dukes, prime ministers, governor generals, like the wonderfully named Freeman, Freeman Thomas, who ran Canada for a while, but is perhaps best known for jailing Gandhi. Plus, there were famous philosophers and economists. I can also say confidently that even if I wanted to, I would never be proposed for membership of either club. Clubs varied in purpose, membership, naming conventions and organisation, and they would crop up again and again. They changed a lot over the Victorian era, and they provided another link between the ruling classes, or at least the wealthy upper middle class. They allowed men who weren't politically aligned to mix in a setting where they were culturally almost equal. Since clubs were a little less formal than other places, it won't surprise you to realise that they allowed men of the same narrow elite to use their networks to further their ambitions and exclude outsiders. They were also strictly for men, unless a lady was invited as a guest under the rules. Inviting a lady to an event at a club heightened the level of formality required. In the presence of ladies, the most formal etiquette had to be followed. So in a way, the clubs acted as a safe space for men where they could be a little more outside the rigid systems that govern their day-to-day lives. They were, therefore, an important tool of power and shouldn't be overlooked. They were snobbish and exclusionary by design, and in India, a good dose of racism was added in. They were far too expensive for the lower middle classes. They were exported to India and were an institution of both rest and relaxation for the British, a means of cultural anchoring to the homeland, a filter between the colonial culture and the new ruling elites, and a tool of racist repression and social exclusion. This made them highly useful as political tools. Oh, and by the way, this is a highly neglected field of study. These clubs had immense impacts, and if you are a historian, thinking about a study or a PhD, why not choose the development of British gentlemen's clubs as a social institution and tool of imperial power? There were also the growing network of working men's clubs, often explicitly aimed to provide education and instill the right kind of political views in the working class. The Brighton Working Men's Institute, was founded in 1848, was the first recognisable working men's club, according to historian R. Price, in the working men's club movement and the Victorian social reform ideology, quote, it aimed more 
than just formal education. It wanted to civilise and elevate working men in the widest sense. Thus, Robertson had originally insisted that control of the Institute should rest with the members because of the elevation of character which arises from the feeling of property. Working men were to be refined into gentlemen by poetry, into the possession of sensible political views by correct political economy and into men of property by possession and control of their institute. This was the way to see working men emerge from a state of ignorance to one of intellect, knowledge, and most importantly, respectability, end quote. Thus, the middle classes and the upper classes began again the political shaping of the working class, but this was later than the period of 1820 to 1830, when the aristocracy was much more concerned with staying in control and would come to the decision by about 1832 to co-opt the middle class so that they would not form an alliance with the working class. For the working class, the struggle for survival and reform were closely linked and could sometimes align to the lower middle classes. Social respectability and social mobility warred with the need for making money and getting access to the new industrial products. Above the working classes and the lower middle classes of clerks, respectable artisans and impoverished farmers were the powerful middle classes of merchants, administrators, bankers, engineers, lawyers, doctors, surveyors and officer rulers who sometimes became nabobs, men who had made their fortunes in India either through trade or war or running factories or mines or through the wealth of slavery in the Caribbean. They supported the existing institutions and pressed hard for access to them. It enraged men who had commanded armies and made fortunes, they were shut out from power, even when they purchased vast estates or made generous gifts. A lot of them sneered at as being new money or vulgar, especially by the Tories, so they gravitated to the Whigs. Of course, due to corruption, there were sometimes only a handful of voters in a constituency, whilst the great cities like Manchester were barely represented at all. Interestingly though, the right to vote wasn't restricted to property owners. Some people could vote because they held what were considered ancient rights or had an income above a certain level. And this did include women. It is worth remembering that up until the 1832 Reform Act, some women in Britain absolutely did have the right to vote. Some people could vote because of what was called Scott and Lot. Others would fight bitterly for the chance, but would find themselves excluded. It was hard for MPs to easily represent such a huge range of interests, but the small number of people eligible to vote helped. This void was filled by a huge number of associations, community groups, voluntary marches, guilds, church communities and local government who all offered 
a limited degree of political access for the disenfranchised, outside of these formal structures were the practical powers of the men who commanded the ships, the Royal Navy, far from the sight of land, hard to reach by orders from central government or a distant admiralty, they wielded the immense power of a British warship and could strong-arm many local rulers, force ports open for trade, seize coastal territories or snap up what were called belligerent shipping or pirates. They could usually expect little official censor for their actions. Then there were the vast territories, armies and ships of the Honourable East India Company. They answered to the board of directors in London and in practice were a second state under the crown. Officers and officials on the frontier could be a mix of company men or crown agents and with communications patchy they could frequently fight wars and rule with as much power as a Roman proconsul or provincial governor. Titles and exact roles varied from viceroys to governors to envoys. Each acted as they deemed best according to their instructions and local conditions. Many had to shape the impractical orders from distant London into forms that suited the local deserts or frozen mountain ranges or the dusty plains or monsoon-lashed swamps. For the most talented or lucky of them, London exercised as much control over them as the Roman Senate had over Caesar. Then there were the frontier colonies in remote locations like Australia and Tasmania where there were no pre-existing civilizations to take over. Instead, whole social structures had to be created, usually whilst co-opting or ruthlessly killing the native peoples and driving them from their land. Some historians have claimed family itself was a radically different concept in England, where it remained tightly household-focused, and other areas like Scotland where mass migrations made it more diffuse as a concept. This in turn acquired different laws and different political institutions to cope. The tight central control of an English city wasn't suited to the Scottish Highlands, especially when family members served across the empire, massively complicating simple things like voter registration, legal jurisdictions, inheritance, and much more. When you look at these varied groups and the things I've described today, you can see that the idea of Queen Victoria and the Prime Minister ruling Britain and the Empire at the top of a pyramid-shaped hierarchy is nonsense. The whole system of government was ramshackle, highly reliant on personal relationships, and very, very cumbersome. Political structures operated both vertically and horizontally across Britain and the Empire, with an incredibly complex interplay of a bewildering variety of institutions that we've mentioned. It gives lie to the old chestnut, as written by historian A.J. Taylor, and is frequently misquoted and misunderstood. Quote, Until August 1914, a sensible, law-abiding Englishman could pass through life hardly notice the existence of the state. 
beyond the post office and the policeman. He could live where he liked and as he liked. He had no official number or identity card. He could travel abroad or leave his country forever without a passport or any sort of official permission. He could exchange his money for any other currency without restriction or limit. End quote. Now, this has to be looked at in the context <coughs> that Taylor actually talking about the impact of World War I he contributes to the myth that the Victorians were a small state libertarian society that only believed in the free market. It only really works if you have a very narrow definition of the state and you ignore the vast but less formal ways the Victorian state existed and acted. I should make it clear this is my own argument, but I feel that looking at the totality of Victorian institutions in the round, it is pretty fair. If you are interested, well, we will have plenty more to look at on this topic in the next couple of episodes, plus future episodes on society and the class system. Complicated as this all was, it did work to a degree. The British state hadn't had a revolution. It had won the Napoleonic Wars, and it was expanding the empire, and its economy was growing. By its own lights, on its own terms, it was actually pretty successful. It just wasn't aiming to achieve the things that we probably think are important. The challenge of the 1830s and the 1840s, though, was to bring some kind of modernization and order to it, then deal with the huge problems people's rights, people's prosperity, and the franchise. Right, I've thrown a huge amount at you, so we will leave it there for today. Join me next time as we cover the Tories and the battle for Catholic emancipation. I'll try to get it out a little sooner if I can, so that the political stuff is fresh in everyone's minds. Now, I've got some listener reviews to do, and a few thank yous as well. I have just discovered that the show has reviews on Podbean. I'm really, really sorry to all the reviewers for not mentioning them before. Seriously, I totally missed this. So here we go. First up was Purple Steph, who said, I love the enthusiasm you obviously have for this subject. I'm a big fan of the Victorians myself, and I look forward to listening to your podcasts. Thank you, Steph. Second was Sophiam Banbury. I'm really enjoying the podcast so far. Thank you for taking the time. Again, thank you ever so much. Daniel Nikos said, I enjoy your podcast very much, especially your attention to telling the human stories. Your empathy and interest is inspiring. So cheers from a fellow D&D fan. I'm glad there are lots of D&D fans listening to the show. I'm especially glad, as I know it is tempting to go and binge watch Stranger Things instead and I can totally lose hours to that show and D&D. So, cheers for the review. Finally, from Podbean, uh, was Nathan, who said, Greetings from the USA. This podcast is delightfully educational, with high attention to not just on the matter of Victoria herself, but many other topics. My personal favourite were the episodes on fish and chips, as well as the early popularisation of gin. It helps make my long drives at work bearable and assists my creativity in setting the scenes as I games master 
a Victorian-themed tabletop role-playing game called Through the Breach, stroke Malifaux. As a fellow role-player, Chris, I'd love to know what sort of character you roll as in Victorian England, fantasy or otherwise. Keep up the great work, now. From Nathan. Well, thanks, Nathan. As long-time listeners know, I love both gin and making a podcast episode about gin. It was genuinely really good fun. I try to make sure the show keeps focus on people, even if that's been a bit hard to do today's grand politics show. As for Manifo, I used to play in second edition, but it took too much time, what with the commute and the podcast. So sadly, Pandora and Shenlong are firmly on the shelf. I've not tried Through the Breach. I'm actually a fifth edition D&D fan these days. In character terms, I really like my characters to be different, larger than life, and perhaps a little crazy. So I've run a drug-addicted, crazy South American shaman, who was actually a druid, a paladin with a fixation on hair and beauty products, a sort of cross between a bro, Captain America, a fashion designer, and Zap Brannigan from Futurama, and a lazy 70-year-old Kung Fu monk who is addicted to cheap rolled-up cigarettes, carries a broom with a pointy handle, and enjoys fleecing rich people to give to the poor. I genuinely pity the DM who gets me when I finally decide to play a bard. There have also been some reviews on iTunes. First up, Dave from The Shed has said, quote, This is podcasting, as, in my mind anyway, it was meant to be. A host who loves their subject, with a warm, intimate style that draws you in. Unhurried, a great voice, engaging, personal, but deeply and carefully researched. And a great range of topics that cover the social history of the Victorians as much as public figures. A real joy. End quote. That's really touching. Thank you, Dave. I'm absolutely blown away. Influencer LND says, A focus on human stories. I absolutely love this podcast. You can tell that each episode has been painstakingly researched and strives to be balanced. Chris has a wonderful voice and a real talent for storytelling. Again, thank you, Influencer. And yes, I do still strive really hard to be balanced and to do lots of detailed research. I've actually just added a whole load of sources on the Peterloo Massacre to the website. So for those of you who are looking to see the details of some of my research, I am putting as much of it as possible up on the site as and when I can. And lastly, a review from C. Fafton, who says, insightful and a great guy. Really have enjoyed getting into depth with this topic. And Chris is great at framing the information in light and interesting ways. Keep it up. Okay, thank you for that. And I hope you still feel that way after listening to politics today, which I know isn't everyone's bag. Finally, I want to say a thank you to the show's patrons. Ho-ho Toff, Michelle Gersick. Ho-ho Toff, Michelle Packham. Ho-ho Toff, Rob Coughlin. And ho-ho Toff, Steve Doc Pinko Clouter. Our respectable governesses are Jeffrey Rubinoff, Sean Warzik, host of the American History Podcast, Erpso, Amy Coldwell, and our lovable chimney sweeps are Joseph Kapperman, JB Unicorn, and Ephemeral von Hinterland. Thank you all so much for your support. It does so much to keep this show on air, 
and it's wonderful to see the ranks of Victorian society swelling with such fine, upstanding members. And if you want to support the show by becoming a patron, just go to the Patreon site and search for Age of Victoria, or go via our website, theageofvictoriapodcast.com. And don't forget, the website has got maps, sources, pictures, all kinds of things, so do give it a visit, have a look around, see what you can find of interest. And, now that you've listened to me, I'll just give a final shout out to a couple of other podcasts you might want to have a listen to whilst you're waiting for my next episode. First up, I'd like to recommend The History of Aotearoa. That's a really great show on the history of New Zealand from the perspective of the Maori. And, when you're done with that, have a listen to the Australian Histories podcast. Really good shows, those two. And there's also a new coming show that's just arrived, which is the Number 10 podcast. It's only got a few episodes, but it's very interesting. And it's the history of British Prime Ministers. So I think that's going to give you a perspective that will sometimes overlap with the Victorians. And you'll probably find it really useful. Let's hope it's a good runner. All right. Cheers, everyone. And bye for now. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care and bye for now.